0: Welcome to the Wednesday, October 5th edition of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. As always, I am your host, Joe Alcock. I am joined today by Dr. Melissa Franklin, who was my co-author on a paper that we published in 2012 in the Quarterly Review of Biology on Nutrient Signaling. We'll talk more about that in the podcast, but Melissa now teaches evolutionary medicine, as do I. Uh, She teaches it in the Department of Biology and Biotechnology at Central New Mexico College, here in Albuquerque. And so we'll, we'll talk today about her experience teaching evolutionary medicine, and we'll circle back and talk more about dietary fats, nutrient signaling, and gut microbes. But how are you, Melissa?
1: I'm doing well, Joe. It's been a while since I've seen you. So a lot's been going on in the field. I know it's been really exploding. Um, I've been teaching the evolutionary medicine course just for a couple of years here at central New Mexico, and I've had a wide variety of backgrounds, including a bunch of nursing students, uh, all the way to students who haven't even had an intro bio course. So
0: wow. so I should say that you know, Melissa uh, took my class the first year that I taught it, I think. So back in 2008, this was in the Department of Biology at the University of New Mexico, and then she went on to uh, help me teach that class uh, at, at UNM and I'm really pleased to see that she has has her own class. And this is of course this is not the only thing that you teach. You, you have a a variety of different responsibilities here. I see that you're teaching something on um mindfulness.
1: Yeah, so I have an a little bit of an interest and in background in neuroscience and a couple degrees in psych before I got my final degree in biology. And so I uh gravitated toward that here. It has been a growing movement across the nation for students to get these skills that will help them get through their classes and also help them survive when they get out into their programs and are then practicing. And so most of the students are pre-health professionals that I see, uh, but not always. So Uh,
0: that means they're going on to nursing school, that sort of thing?
1: Primarily at this college, nursing school, a few pre-meds, some physical therapists and occupational therapists and other wide range of technologies med techs that will come through my classes.
0: Mm-hmm. So how, how has it been teaching evolution to these students?
1: Well, what's fun about having a mix of students with a different background is one student may know about CRISPR, a sophisticated genetics tool to amplify genes and get them into another chromosome. And, an, and then the next student won't, will hardly know what DNA is, mm. and so it forces us to really stay at the central concepts.
0: Right. It's, it's good to be able to, te- to teach to a diverse and broad audience. I think that's a, that's a, a good skill. I know from you know, when you taught my class that you are an excellent teacher, and I'm sure you have no problem reaching some of these students.
1: Oh, thank you, Joe. I learned everything I know from you.
0: Oh, please. <laughs> so uh, we'll circle back and talk a little bit about diet, because that was one of the things that, again, we started talking about back in 2008. And it was an interest of mine that led me to teach the class in evolutionary medicine. I remember hearing a talk by Chris Kazawa at Northwestern University in which he laid out a rationale for why certain fats might be different. And this was in the context of babies and infants, and you know human babies are among the fattest of any animal. Do you remember that? Yeah,
1: so. looking across species, most other infants are very lean.
0: So chimpanzees, for instance, orangutans, even our our ape relatives, their babies, yeah, they look, they don't have the subcutaneous fat that we do. So he was intrigued by that and suspected that fats might behave differently and might be stored and utilized differently in childhood as a way of preserving brain development in, in adults, et cetera. So I remember talking to Chris after his lecture and I was very interested in the argument he put out. And I thought it was just an amazingly interesting topic, that of you know fats and diet and why it is that our bodies treat them so differently.
1: And so, then later, Chris Kazawa came to join us. Well, he did. So
0: I came to him after we had written a draft of our paper and asked for his help. And he was a great help in, in developing the idea. But the, the, the central idea behind our paper... So the paper was entitled Nutrient Signaling Evolutionary Origins of the Immune Modulating Effects of Dietary Fat. And the central idea is that nutrients have evolved their signaling functions either pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory because of their effects on the microbiome. So, by 2008 it was becoming clear that microbes and you know the composition of these communities of and bacteria, archaea, protozoans viruses has a huge impact on our health and that must have something to do with why different kinds of foods and different nutrients have such such big effects
1: when we say signaling what are we thinking the nutrients are signaling to or for
0: before we knew anything about the microbiome it was clear that certain kinds of foods were either healthy or unhealthy and that whether their health effects tracked in large part with effects on immune cells and inflammation. So, for instance, it had been noted for years and years that saturated fat, these are carbon-chained fats that are fully saturated with hydrogen atoms, that these molecules, when incubated with our immune cells and when we ingest them, seem to provoke an inflammatory response. And so our bodies provoke and generate inflammatory signaling as a result of them. Whereas there are some other fats, and notably these are omega-3 fatty acids, the ones that are rich in marine fish. But these fats do the opposite. They seem to actually reduce inflammation. So what I mean by signaling effects are that uh, there, is, there are signaling pathways in the body that involve immune cells uh, that go in one way or the actual, the actual opposite way, depending on the species of fat that we ingest.
1: And when you say the inflammatory process, what's bad about that, or what are we thinking that's connected to here?
0: Part of our argument really is that the inflammation that is provoked by the, by the nutrients might actually serve some adaptive function.
1: Ah, I see.
0: If you want to take a, the, the long-distance view, it's clear that how much inflammation that we have in our bodies over the long term, so chronic low-grade inflammation as measured by say, the number of circulating wet blood cells, the amount of uh, you know, gene transcription by you know, re- regulators like nuclear factor Kappa B, etc. But those seem to be associated with ill health, like heart disease and uh, other inflammatory conditions.
1: So those are big, top Western diseases. Do we see anything different in non-Western
0: communities? Also a great question. So you, you know this. In non Western communities like say the Chimane living in Bolivia, turns out they have very little in the way of heart disease. But and they have a completely different profile of inflammation in their blood. Mm. And they eat essentially what we think of as being a relatively healthy diet. I don't think that we understand every aspect of this, but for us living in industrialized societies, it seems to be bad to to be exposed chronically to certain diets that elicit inflammation in our bodies.
1: So recently in my evolutionary medicine class, particularly the one that I taught last fall, a lot of my nursing students and even one achievement coach here at CNM who took the class got really fired up about what we call the high fructose corn syrup story. And we were turned on to the story by a guy named Robert Lustig who is making a very loose Darwinian... very you pointed
0: me towards this YouTube video. This is a yeah. <laughs> Trouble with Fructose a darwinian perspective by Robert Lustig MD.
1: Yeah, right. And, and actually Robert
0: Lustig <laughs> and I we've uh, we've conversed on Twitter and I am aware of uh, of his work.
1: So he's saying that fructose is metabolized by the liver completely different than the form of sugar that all of our cells use to make energy, which would be glucose. What do you think of that idea?
0: Well, I have to say that I'm not completely up to date with all of Robert Lustig's ideas, but you know, what what form do we, we consume sugar in? In our diets.
1: Yeah, so usually it's in the form of carbohydrates that we break down. Right. I'm thinking that's the bulk of our sugar form.
0: But fructose coming from fruit seems like we know that, for instance, chimpanzees, our closest relative, eat a diet that is high in fruits. And it's thought that early humans, if we use our modern hunter-gatherers as a stand-in for early humans, consume fruit and nuts. So it's hard to imagine that fructose would be something that our bodies can't deal with. So what's his idea behind that?
1: My impression is that he is saying that fructose normally would not have hit our liver as fast as it does, say, with a big gulp of Coca-Cola with 65 grams of high fructose corn syrup in it, versus fruit that comes with fiber or, say, our primate relatives who ingest a huge amount of fiber, fiber with their fruit consumption, and so it would hit the liver much more slowly, and that the liver supposedly can't keep up with that load and when it doesn't keep up with the load fructose being that it gets turned into triglycerides or some of those fats that cause cardiovascular disease when they're released into the bloodstream will start to back up in the liver and then you get fatty liver disease
0: Because the liver just can't deal with that many molecules of fructose
1: Yeah so that's the so it's idea kind
0: of over capacity <laughs> stuffed to capacity yeah. kind of a problem
1: That's my impression yeah Right
0: and I think I've heard similar arguments for why it is that, you know, high fat might be bad for us also mm-hmm. and causing insulin resistance and mm-hmm. oxidative damage to our bodies. It's kind of a argument based on storage that we have a, a certain capacity in our cells to cope with these molecules and when there's too much of them, our cells get fat. And yeah, we end up with the we end up with fatty liver. And the cells that are overflowing with fat end up causing all sorts of downstream problems and inflammation.
1: Yeah.
0: I think that's nonsense because it, it sort of proposes that, that our bodies have are constrained in some way, that we simply can't deal with food. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we had evolved in a universe with no microbes, our bodies would have no problem coping with lots of fat and lots of carbohydrate, even fructose.
1: Mm. So you think the fructose might be having an effect perhaps farther downstream uh, where the microbes are helping us digest and get nutrients from
0: the foods we I think that what, I'm, what, I, what I think and what we have written about in our 2012 paper is that these, the way that our bodies handle these, some of these nutrients and the way that some of them seem to be harmful for us, that those harmful effects wouldn't have occurred if we had evolved in the absence of microbes. So, but part of this is kind of a, a thought experiment. And clearly we live in a universe that has microbes. So it'd be tough to prove this idea wrong, but it doesn't make sense to me that simple energy building blocks that our bodies can use for growth and reproduction and maintenance functions, that these simple molecules would be harmful for us. And so if, if Robert Lustig is saying that the problem is that the liver is confronted by you know, sugar in massive doses... I think that part of his argument is probably right, that it's true. Hunter-gatherers were not consuming super big gulps with massive amounts of high fructose corn syrup. But still, these molecules and the fructose wouldn't be as bad for us if we lived in a universe without microbes.
1: So what are the microbes doing that help us deal with these food molecules, and how do they? what do they have to do with our immune system? And I'm seeing a lot of research out in the literature now where we're linking gut microbes to things like autoimmune conditions, uh, or the lack thereof, or the lack of a balance of gut microbes. I was wondering, you've taken our work down that line in your head.
0: This gets to an overall conceptual view of microbes in general. You know, Marty Blazer published the, the book, Missing Microbes, which is a good book. I've read excerpts of it, and I've talked to Marty Blazer. I'm impressed with him. He's a a great gastroenterologist, and he's credited with this idea that many of the problems of Western societies, epidemics of obesity and cardiovascular disease, really result from missing certain key microbes that are good for us or beneficial. I just came moments ago from an immunology talk in which uh, it was said that our gut microbes are by and large friendly and good for us. I've always taken issue with this idea, and it seems to be that a much more realistic view of the microbiota is one of competition. Yes, some of them are potentially fitness enhancing under the right circumstances, but we live in this complex ecosystem with lots of other unrelated microbes that don't share our genetic interests. Some of them will compete with us. Some of them will be harmful to us. So getting back to diet, the simple argument is that diets that promote harmful microbes in our microbiota will tend to evolve a pro-inflammatory signaling property. And will alert our bodies to the presence of these harmful microbes because nutrients have predictable effects on the microbiota. And on the opposite side, when we consume foods that inhibit harmful and pathogenic microbes, those signaling molecules will evolve an anti-inflammatory signaling function. So that's the the gist of our paper. And we could we could go into it in great detail. But we tested the proposition that anti-inflammatory fats would be linked with killing off harmful bugs. And in fact, they do. So, omega-3 fatty acids, as you remember yes. from our paper, yes, they kill off uh, and they actually inhibit the growth of harmful bugs like Helicobacter pylori, um, Staphylococcus aureus, and many other bugs.
1: And these are things that almost everyone is living with already. Yeah, uh, H. pylori thought to to be in everyone's stomach, except for maybe some of us have more aggressive ones than others. And then Staphylococcus aureus is on everyone's skin, for sure. Some of us have antibiotic-resistant ones, and some of us don't. And so it seems like there's a lot of complexity here, where our bodies as an ecosystem for the microbes we carry are having that under control by not just our immune system and its ability to recognize when there might be a problem, but also the presence of the microbes particular species that we really don't know a lot about yet.
0: Right. So, and that is that is certainly true. There are many uncultured species that we can get at by doing 16S sequencing of the microbiome, and we don't really even know what these microbes are doing. We don't necessarily know what their functions are. So you're, you're absolutely right.
1: Yeah, it's going to be an exciting time, I think, the next 10, 20 years. As, I think as so. it uh, comes out more. This relationship between us, this sort of love-hate relationship between us and our microbes. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. You you talked a little bit about immune development. Yeah. And, you know, I have done some thinking about this. And we have have done a little bit of work with the Chimani in Bolivia, with um, collaborators Hilly Kaplan and Melanie Martin, Mm -hmm. with the idea that exposure to certain microbes early on might be beneficial to, to kids. And this does relate pretty closely to what Marty Blazer has said, which is that having a diverse community of microbes early on in life seems to be protective. My take on this is that it's probably not good for you when you're an infant to be exposed to horrific pathogens like, say, (laughs) Neisseria meningitis that causes meningitis, virulent Staph aureus, enteropathogenic E. coli. Those things are not good for you. They're going to likely kill you. But if you are exposed to similar related microbes that lack some of those virulence properties, then that does actually give your immune system the capacity to be educated, as it were, and maybe makes your immune system better able to confront those threats in the future. Hmm. This is a bit of a paradox. What provokes inflammation in us as adults, it pretty much is the presence of what we think of as being harmful microbes. And the thing that antagonizes inflammation and is good for us are the presence of beneficial species, like the ones that we eat in our yogurt. But in babies and in infants, much of the work regarding uh, development, it certainly is good for babies to be exposed at an early age to lots of breast milk fed bifidobacteria, so beneficial species. But there's plenty of work that shows that some exposure to E. coli Uh, maybe some Staphylococcus species. Ones that don't kill these babies do seem to cause their immune systems to develop in a different way, and one which seems to be beneficial. I think this is still a paradox, and we don't totally understand it.
1: Hmm. Yeah, so there's some work out there where... Uh, there's a comparison between, say, C-section-born babies or babies that are born vaginally, and the idea is that the vaginal microbes sort of start the whole direction for a healthy microbial community. Um, what do you think yeah. about that research? Well, I think
0: that's a, that's a good example of something some, some of the tension inherent in the, these ideas. You know, if you're a baby and you're born by C-section, then, yeah, you're not being exposed to bacteria and the, and the you know, birth canal in the vagina as you're being born, you're not being exposed to maternal feces that also happens during regular vaginal childbirth. And you're not being exposed necessarily immediately to the skin flora of the mother. You're probably delivered to a, a nurse via C-section through um, after mom's been given antibiotics and through skin that's been treated with iodine and then delivered to a sterile towel and then put <laughs> into a warmer. Yeah. And these kids don't get those exposures. Mm. So that's, I think that's absolutely right. That yeah. some of, you know, exposure to mom's microbes seems to be really helpful.
1: So that's part of the training of the immune system, and that's why some microbes are seen as beneficial. Right. What makes a microbe virulent? Um, what kind of behavior or misbehavior would a microbe have if it's dangerous to us? Are there
0: any main features? So, you know, um, in the hospital where I work at, at UNM. Yeah so we're surrounded by virulent pathogens <laughs> and if you want to go find a virulent virulent bug that's the place to go <laughs> so where sick patients congregate where us doctors and nurses can have the potential to tra- transfer microbes from person to person where our stethoscopes and our clothes get colonized that's where we find them and you know their their features it, it, i think it points to the idea that there are certain specialized microbes that their their fitness interests clearly benefit by harming ours mm. and so there's you know a bunch of different ways that can happen but with regard to diet it seems like certain foods do tend to provoke virulence in microbes and others others may not but this is a complicated thing
1: one thing I always think of when I think of something virulent is that it's replicating at a really fast rate and so it's sort of out competing some of the other maybe more beneficial microbes. They're kind of competing for space first and nutrients second, or maybe nutrients first and then the, and then the space comes later. I don't know. It seems complicated.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that points to something important in our guts. When we think of the healthy gut and our and a healthy um, state of being for ourselves, much of that does seem to do with our ability and our immune system's ability to cultivate microbes that are slow growing, that are not particularly harmful to us, ones that truly might be mutualists or at least non-harmful commensals in our guts. But I think that if we were, I think if if we were to kind of key in on a feature of a benign mutualist microbe, it's one that's not reproducing at a super fast rate. So that's where, you know, Robert Lustig might be onto something. You know, when we are dumping in huge amounts of sugar, we are causing certain populations to bloom and mm. to reproduce at a very, very high rate. Mm. And you know, that feature of rapid re- reproduction may tend to favor virulence. That would be, you know, I think that's something that is worth worth looking into.
1: Yeah. I don't know anybody who's looked into that question yet, but that yeah. would I would see where that would be related for sure.
0: But I think, in terms of us and our immune systems and our guts, there's pretty good evidence that a major function of our immune system is to discourage the growth of fast-growing organisms in our guts. Mm-hmm. And you know, the byproduct of that, of having, you know, relatively slow, replicating populations, might be the maintenance of diversity, because you can imagine, just like when you dump fertilizer on your lawn, and you get overgrowth of a, of a weed species. Something similar may be happening when you consume the big gulp. Mm. We're causing a bloom or an overgrowth of fast reproducing weed species in our guts. And those microbes may not have our best interests at heart. That may be an area of overlap between Robert Lustig's thinking and ours. But ours is an explicitly microbiome-centric viewpoint. Yes. Again, again, the proximate reason for why certain diets are bad for Mm -hmm. us is because of their effects on the microbiome. And the ultimate reason for the, the, these harmful effects is that it probably interferes with some of our immune mechanisms that tend to promote or discourage the growth of harmful microbes, and what we propose in our paper, which is that certain foods may have a early warning function. These foods, when they hit our digestive tracts, they alert our immune systems to an impending change in the microbiome, that essentially we know that our bodies have evolved so that they respond to, to microbes because of predictable effects on the microbiota. That when we go back to hunter-gatherers, it might be that certain nutrients have affected the microbiome in a predictable way. So that's a prediction of our idea. So this early warning function mm-hmm. of, of nutrients. So when we're being slammed by lots of simple carbohydrates, that may actually elicit inflammation in the way that we've, we've talked about. Fueling the fire and giving an easy energy source to harmful microbes. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm thinking of, of a couple different directions uh, from that. And one is an anthropologist named Christina Warner,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, who looks at the paleo diet. She kind yeah. of debunks the paleo diet. Um, I have not has... met her,
0: but I'm, I'm familiar with what she's done. <laughs> yeah. And, and her work is very cool.
1: Yeah. So she looks at dental plaque and, mm-hmm. and analyzes it for microbes. and gets back to the idea of what would we have been eating in our so-called natural state. Um, And it wasn't big gulps. (laughs) Um, We were opportunists for sure. Uh, We would probably not have had a well-rounded, balanced plate with uh, fruits, vegetables, and meat on it every meal and would have been eating a lot more fiber than probably we do get in our westernized diets today. From what I understand, Um, she goes into a lot more specifics. But in thinking that, and thinking what our body's used to seeing, the other piece that comes to mind is, well, where did the good fats come from? Where did the omega-3s... I remember when we were doing this Mm -hmm. research, you got really excited because you started seeing a link to an earlier bacteria that might be related to the omega-3s. I don't know if you remember that. The cyanobacteria?
0: I have forgotten that, I have I have to yeah. admit. I haven't <laughs> thought about that in a couple in several years. Yeah, yeah.
1: So I thought this was really interesting because here you have the blue green algae. Mm-hmm. Um, being linked to maybe why the fish and fish oil is holding the fats that are good for us, and then land animals and land fats being farther away from uh, what's good for us.
0: Right. So yeah, we, we, we definitely kicked around a bunch of different competing ideas for why it is that nutrients had evolved these inflammatory signaling properties. One of them was that was that our phylogenetic distance from different animals might, might have an effect.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, phylogenetic distance would have been one, and then um, some anthropologists say that we, maybe we were more coastal peoples before we moved inland. Mm. But uh, it,
0: the... we talked about that the uh, aquatic <laughs> ape hypothesis yeah. in, in our last <laughs>
1: class. Ah, uh, yeah. That was
0: so uh, for readers of the evolution medicine blog, they'll be aware that yeah, we talked about this idea that perhaps we evolved from some aquatic transitional form in uh, in human evolution, but we pretty well debunked that idea. In class, and there's there's um good good reasons i think that we probably didn't evolve uh, as a fully aquatic form and during human evolution but we did pose that question that if if perhaps maybe our human ancestors did evolve in a location where where fish was plentiful we modern humans do seem to like the coast Mm -hmm. and like rivers (laughs) and lakes so maybe Mm -hmm. that's maybe that is the case maybe that's why fish seems to be good for us
1: Mm, yeah so a lot of what, one thing I love about this field and why I never get tired of reading about it is because it seems like there are so many new hypotheses that have yet to be tested <laughs> I, can, I can be assured that I'll never run out of hypotheses to be tested in my lifetime
0: well that's true <laughs> and I think that that's the that's the beauty of evolutionary medicine is that it's a hypothesis generating heuristic, a way of thinking about ourselves and biology that lends itself to you know testable hypotheses. so some people criticize the enterprise of evolution when applied to humans as being a just-so story. Uh, But in fact, it's not just a story. These ideas, they do have distinct and testable predictions that are different from non-evolutionary hypotheses. Good, there just aren't probably enough people out there testing these ideas.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. With my background in psychology, because we were studying features that were, you couldn't see, they were invisible. We had to be very careful in the way we designed experiments and made sure that we were not telling ourselves stories in psychology as well. And I think that's true with evolution, because we can't ab- always observe it directly. Although with microbes, you can, because of their generation time being so short. Right.
0: right? Well, what, is, what are some of the questions or, or thoughts about diet that, that interest you now?
1: Hmm. I am finding that the link between the gut and the brain functions really kind of fascinating. Not surprising since my background has a little bit of psychology in there. But why would, for example, a microbe make something that mimics our neurotransmitters exactly? Mm-hmm. And it turns out if you have a microbe that responds to, say, perhaps sugar, then it could tell the brain go get more sugar for me, please. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's a, a provocative idea for me. Are the microbes causing sugar cravings, for example?
0: Right. So my co-authors, Athena Actifis and Carlo Maley, and I published in Bioessays a paper about that very question. And I think that it's a, it's, an, it's an open question. And there was a, a paper that came out recently. So this is in Nature Endocrinology, published online 12 September 2016, so just a few days ago, and the, the paper is entitled Role of the Gut Microbiota in Host Appetite Control, Bacterial Growth to Animal Feeding Behavior, and this is a review that outlines some of those ideas. So n- not necessarily neurotransmitters, but Fedosov has outlined how bacterial neuropeptides share homology with our own appetite-regulating peptides, which is just amazing. Hmm. And he has gone on to say that that some of these um, peptides may in fact regulate certainly our appetite uh, feeding behavior in ways that may or may not represent manipulation. It doesn't really come at this from an evolutionary perspective, but certainly from a mechanistic argument, it raises all kinds of interesting questions along those lines. But here are microbes producing appetite-regulating hormones. What's up with that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love this. I just this just came out this is a long and uh oh wow an interesting review but it does fascinating. make the point that you know the composition of our microbiota so the bugs that are in our guts do seem to regulate our feeding and energy metabolism when i say us i'm talking about mm-hmm. hosts and mammals mm-hmm. um you know, the argument for human research in this area is pretty pretty thin so yeah. you, you, were, you were interested in some of these brain gut brain uh yeah, yeah. ideas
1: yeah like be curious to see how those come out it does seem like almost every day there's a new paper coming out that that gives a new piece of the story but not necessarily with the evolutionary framework which is the unifying theory that pulls it all together for me Um, in thinking about host manipulation I'm reminded of Ed Wong gave a a rousing TED talk uh, where he talked about emerald emerald wasps who would infect a cockroach uh, in such a way that they he would knock out the part of their brain that told them to walk, and then they would guide them by the antenna to their lair and lay their eggs. And so it was a very clear and sophisticated treatment of host manipulation. But Ed Yong does give a, a really fun TED talk on all that.
0: Emerald wasps. Yes, I'll have to look that one up. <laughs> I love it. I have his his new book.
1: Ah, <laughs> yeah, zombie roaches and other parasite uh, there we tales.
0: Go. <laughs> We see lots of examples of this in the animal kingdom of microbial inhabitants taking over the brains of their hosts, doing things that are not in the host's best interest, but are in the parasite's best interest. Yeah. Toxoplasmosis, of course, is the you know, example which is best known in mammals.
1: Right. Toxoplasmosis. I remember my class was really fascinated by that, that uh, link between um, mental health and uh, exposure to, to this particular microbe. Right. Um, there's quite a bit more to the story, though. It looks like there's some genetics involved as well, with Toxo, whether, yeah, or with microbes, with um, uh, we'll Toxo, so. yeah. Well, what direction do you think you'll go next in your research? Are you still down in Bolivia quite a bit, or
0: no? And a matter of fact, I haven't actually even been to Bolivia. I just have working with um, some anthropologists here at UNM and at UC Santa Barbara uh, with that, that ongoing project, which is super exciting. But most most of my time is taken up with uh, my current work is looking at my colleagues working in the hospital. Hmm. So I have a couple interests. So one is I'm very critical of some of the things that uh, we take for granted in emergency and critical care medicine, a variety of different things where we act as if we know what's in the best interest of of our patient, when in fact the evidence for a lot of what we do is very, very thin. And I think that you can come up with an evolutionary scheme that would... Uh, support kind of a minimalist approach, so intervening only when the evidence is really good for it, but that's really not how we practice, so I'll I'll save that for a future podcast. Um, With regard to microbiota, I've got a project right now where we're looking at the effect of sleep deprivation and circadian rhythm disruption Mm. among shift workers. So these are my colleagues that are staying up all night in the hospital.
1: Right. Pulling 12 hour shifts or even longer, I guess, when there's no one else to take over.
0: Right. So Mm. the biggest impact on your microbiome is diet Mm. or whether you've just taken a course of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. But besides that, a a feature that does seem to impact your gut is sleep. So Mm. I, I at least have some kind of provocative data to suggest that there may be an effect of sleep deprivation in, in humans on, on gut microbiomes. Hmm. So I hope to wrap up that project and have it ready by next summer. Uh, with regard to the you know, behavior part of it, sleep deprivation and shift work does a bunch of weird things to your brain. Of course, it can make you jittery. If you're, we can be kind of hyperadrenergic, so we have too much adrenaline or catecholamines flowing in our blood. This is what I've experienced after, say, 36 hours of sleeplessness. Um, in the hospital, which thankfully I don't do anymore, but I remember being very jittery and having kind of a racing heart as I was trying to go home. And we know that there are deficits in concentration, and there's mood effects of sleep deprivation. There are effects on eating. So getting back to our, you know, do microbes affect eating? Mm -hmm. One of the models that I would like to use is uh, when you make someone stay up all night, and if that might affect uh, the composition of their guts, is that what is responsible for the predilection of some sleep-deprived individuals to go for the whole box of Krispy Kreme donuts mm-hmm. and really, you know, plunge into these high-calorie, high-fat foods that we know are bad for us.
1: Mm-hmm. Especially when you're in the healthcare you know. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: So, you know, there's some things that have been established. We do know in other settings that sleep deprivation makes people crave unhealthy foods, things that are loaded with sugar and fat. And we know that sleep deprivation does affect the microbiome in interesting ways. We don't really know if those two things are attached.
1: Mm-hmm, that's really fascinating. And is when you say sleep deprivation, mm-hmm. do you mean just length of sleep or is it also quality like cycling every 90 minutes or what, or amount of REM, the, the dream sleep? Is it quality of sleep or length? So I think or? you can
0: look at sort of circadian disruption in general. Mm-hmm. And that can include things like not sleeping seven hours or it might include staying up all night or being jet lagged. And the other thing would be lots having lots of interruptions. So um, people that have sleep apnea, for instance, wake up multiple times during the night. They may not achieve full wakefulness, but that interruption of sleep seems to have a big impact on their bodies and might predispose to obesity, et cetera.
1: Do the immune cells change according to the circadian rhythm? The immune mm-hmm. activity? Or, yeah. yeah. So now, now that we're into <laughs>
0: sleep, the answer is yes. So all these things are, are totally cool. You know, if you mm-hmm. look at say your toll-like receptors. There's been work, again, this is in mice, mouse models when I say you, mm. uh, that the toll-like receptors, they follow a circadian pattern of, of expression in your body. Mm. So the toll-like receptors, of, of course, are important innate immune receptors that respond to, wait for it, microbes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> of course.
0: <laughs> and it, it kind of makes sense that they're going to follow a circadian pattern uh, because the microbes do too. So uh, interesting work by Elenov. And colleagues in Israel have shown that the microbiota, the actual composition, undergoes circadian changes. There are populations that seem to go up at night, others that go down, but if you follow it over a 24-hour cycle, uh, there's this interesting circadian pattern of the microbiota mm. in our guts. So it makes sense that the toll-like receptors that respond to the microbes would also undergo a circadian pattern and change over over that time. So what we could hypothesize that maybe part of the problem is that those things get mismatched and our immune systems that have been conditioned by a 24-hour circadian pattern and a pattern of eating would expect certain populations to be there and respond to them in a way which enhances our fitness when we travel and cross many time zones we're essentially messing that up the circadian pattern of the microbes changes our eating pattern changes our sleep pattern changes and so does the circadian rhythm of our immune systems
1: Wow. <laughs> I think it's good to
0: keep all that in sync. Right. But it's hard to do, right? It is, and um,
1: modern pace of life yeah. really demands we from We live you. in a city,
0: and I think they've estimated that some, about 15% of jobs aren't typical 9 to 5. Maybe it's more than that, but there's a lot of jobs. And, of course, in the hospital, it's a 24-hour operation. People are, quite literally in some, some instances, staying up all night. We don't really think about what that might be doing to our immunity and, and our microbiota
1: Yeah. I remember a friend of mine going through medical school, and we needed a surgery surgery rotation. His sort of rite of passage was to do 36 hours, and I always thought that was a really bad idea for a surgeon to go mm-hmm. without sleep for 36 hours, right. although sometimes they have to in order to finish a procedure. So I understand... Well, but it's
0: pretty rare that a procedure would last 36 hours. Really? Wonder,
1: yeah. yeah. So I wonder if there'll be some changes in the way health care is administered and the way the healthcare workers' shifts are uh, doled out in the future.
0: So we've already seen that. Uh, Mm -hmm. When I trained, we did do some 36-hour shifts, or not really shifts, but we were on call and in the hospital for those time frames. Those days are over now, and we certainly don't expect that out of our trainees. Maybe some of us will do that in the course of our our jobs, but it's becoming rarer and rarer. Now there really are defined shifts for most of the tasks in the hospital, Mm -hmm. including the emergency room, the intensive care unit. We have hospitalists that work to find shifts who are admitting patients. And that seems to be the way things are going. Mm, that has okay. its own set of downsides, <laughs> yeah. which we could get into. One <laughs> is that it encourages more patient handoffs, which, as a patient, is a very dangerous time mm-hmm. when your care is being transferred to somebody else. But from a circadian perspective, it might be good. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't figured that one out totally.
1: <laughs> it's interesting as it all starts to link back even to something like the economy or the profit the hospital is going to make if it can hire two people to work two 12-hour shifts versus three people who have benefits working yeah. eight-hour shifts?
0: I would say from a personal perspective, you know, having done this job now for 17 years, it is best to work shorter shifts rather than longer ones. I do have some colleagues that, that still work 24-hour shifts. I think that our brains, you know, our, our cognition, I can't concentrate for 24 hours straight. I really can't concentrate for 12 hours straight. And uh, uh, we're pushing it at 10. I, I work a lot of 10-hour shifts.
1: <laughs> well, it's good to hear things are moving in the other direction.
0: <laughs> I, I, th- I think they are. But if it turns out to be that sleep problems at their core are microbiome problems, that would be interesting, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah, very surprising. Yeah. That's what I love about still, evolution. It's still, still unproven.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the, 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 stu- the studies that I've outlined are, are still in pilot phases, and we're still working on on showing if that's true.
1: Yeah. Well, I have one question for you. Mm -hmm. I was really jealous when I saw the Evolutionary Medicine Conference in North Carolina going on this summer, and I couldn't make it. What were one or two of the highlights that just really knocked your socks off when you were there?
0: Oh, there was tons. Yeah. (laughs) So that's the the ISEMF Conference, International Society for Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health. And a little disclaimer here, I was on the, the planning committee uh, for that conference, and I will be for next year's conference too. So I'm definitely invested in this whole enterprise. It's a it's a it's a, a good time. Yeah, there were there were a lot of lectures uh, that were of you know top quality. Uh, some of the keynotes were fantastic. So I mentioned you know Marty Blazer mm-hmm. from NYU. He gave a talk about missing microbes and really laid out the case for why this early exposure when we're being confronted with antibiotics and modern life things like c-sections he really laid out the case for why that is harmful so his talk i thought was excellent there was one other one that i really enjoyed there i I, you know i can't do justice to all the speakers but andrea graham uh who is at princeton um she's a parasitologist among other things yeah and she studies autoimmunity
1: Mm -hmm. and she more or less
0: laid out the case for uh, why it is that say predisposition for things like lupus um, so having antibodies against the, you know, um, against ANA, uh, which is a marker for, for lupus, why that may have some adaptive benefit and, and really laid out the case, case for this and, and essentially showed that uh, in a sheep population, this was somewhere in the British Isles, there's been an isolated population of sheep that are parasitized with worms. And you know, having um, a feature which was similar to what we think of as human lupus, uh, seemed to protect the sheep from overwhelming you know, parasit- parasite loads and was had a benefit in, in sheep. And then she also showed that this same feature of what we think of as being bad and sort of this autoimmune badness um, in, I think it was Hong Kong, and I'd have to go back, so this is just from my memory, uh, but in a, a population in Asia uh, of humans seemed to also be associated with good health and longevity I thought that was super cool because we're not trained in medicine to think about some of these autoimmune diseases as being beneficial in any way. And she laid out hints for their evolution and why these things might have happened.
1: Hmm. And so it, it seems to be linked a bit, if I'm following you, to helminthes hmm. and some of the parasitic worms? Or?
0: It may not always be beneficial for, for the sheep uh, to have some of these autoimmune-like features, but it did protect them from worms. What was remarkable in the human population is that this... That's an industrialized population that isn't very wormy. And so it does make you wonder that it maybe in some other contexts these features may be adaptive for us. Mm. So I'm not i I'm not doing this justice. I'll have to post <laughs> something in the blog, link to her work, let her describe it herself. But I thought that, that that was one of the things that really stood out to me.
1: Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. A few years ago there was a fun radio lab on National Public Radio. Uh, that interviewed a landscaper named Jasper who had terrible allergies and gave himself hookworms so that he could Stimulate his white blood cells that would secrete the antihistamine that would make his allergies better. Well, acidophils. not only did he
0: do that, but he actually went to Africa,
1: right, and right? tromped around yeah, in tromped latrines, around, latrines to were, give himself yeah. <laughs> because we don't have any hookworms left in America. They've been eradicated by Rockefeller when he went to the South and wanted more productivity yeah, in the southern.
0: It's a great story. <laughs> so remarkably, you know, hookworms they can travel I think a meter per day, so yeah, roughly three feet. Right. So you know they can't go too far. But if you walk around barefoot in places not far from where people have pooped that are infected with hookworm, then, yeah, you can acquire it that way.
1: Yeah, and then he started selling it, <laughs> yeah. partially partially cleaning it up and then selling it to people. Um, I right. think the FDA shut him down. He's not in this I country anymore.
0: <laughs> Remarkably, I met someone who does this.
1: Wow, really?
0: Actually <laughs> inoculates himself. With hookworm, uh, there are some there's some interest in actually doing this therapeutically, so it's not a totally crazy idea.
1: Right, there is a scientist who gave himself like 50 what would have been milligrams of hookworms. I'm not sure, and he he uh, saw some link to that. He decided 50 was too much; 10 was better. Right, yeah, <laughs> so, good stuff. So I'll put some yeah. links
0: on the on the website evolutionmedicine.com mm-hmm. with some of those things too. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, parasites. Well, Melissa, this has been a lot of fun talking to you.
1: Yeah, great. <laughs> I'm super
0: excited that you're teaching evolutionary medicine here and in the fall semester, and uh, I wish you well.
1: Thank you. I can't wait to hear more what your class gets into at UNM, in, in the evolutionary medicine class, and just follow this global new movement with evolutionary medicine. It's just really super exciting.
0: <laughs> it, it does seem to be taking off, you know, the fact uh-huh. that classes like ours uh, are becoming more common, that there are journals dedicated to the topic of evolutionary medicine but there are a variety of textbooks so you mentioned steve stern's yeah. uh, text on evolutionary medicine which i also recommend and now there are national com- conferences like ICEMP, as we've talked about and there's going to be uh we, we may be having some additional conferences that will be aimed mostly at clinicians and people in the health health profession good things to come
1: wonderful <laughs> well thank you joe <laughs> thank
0: you